This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We have been going through the book of John, especially the the last part where Jesus' trial and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection we haven't really gotten to yet. And we've been taking all the gospel accounts and putting them together just to make sure that we don't miss anything. Primarily, what we're going to be looking at now is found mostly in the book of John, John 19, beginning in verse number 31. So I'm reading this, and I'm I've read it dozens of times, and I'm getting ready to study it in order to present it to you. And it's really simple. It begins by the word, therefore, based on everything that's happened before. And then Mark 15 kicks in, in the parallel account, and says, when evening had come, and we know that because the the Passover began at sunset, and so it's evening now, Jesus has died. It says, therefore, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, And for those of us who aren't Jewish, we don't know what the preparation day is. Neither did the readers of Mark's gospel, who were Romans. And so he basically tells them that is the day before the Sabbath. Whenever you had a Sabbath, you couldn't work on a Sabbath. You could only travel a certain distance on a Sabbath. You couldn't buy or sell on a Sabbath. You really couldn't cook a meal on a Sabbath. It was kind of like in the Old Testament time, you couldn't go out and pick up manna on a Sabbath. On the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, you would go out and pick two days worth, remember? And so people on the preparation day would prepare for the Sabbath, just like you and I would do. Back when I was growing up, says how old I am, when I was growing up, a lot of businesses closed on Sunday. You remember that? Shocking, isn't it? There was like only one or two restaurants that were open and and, you know, if you're going to be, cook a big meal or something of that nature, you went to the grocery store. My grandmother, I, mean, when I was really young, my grandmother would do this, go to the grocery store on Saturday because when Sunday rolled around, they were pretty much closed. And so everybody has a preparation day. So the Jews would prepare for the Sabbath. Again, Mark's readers wouldn't understand that, so he's telling them this. Therefore, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, then we back into John. Um, and in order, and it is implied here, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Okay, I got that. You know, I want to make sure that the bodies aren't on there, so we need to get those bodies off. So we know the story that they petitioned Pilate to break the legs of the people on there, and they broke the two thieves' legs to hasten their death. Of course, Jesus was already dead, and so they pierced him in the side, and we've got that. But I'm, I'm reading this, and I get this far, that the body should not remain on, on the cross on the Sabbath, And then there's this parentheses. There's something the Holy Spirit wanted to highlight about this particular event. For that Sabbath was a high day. What, like, like a separate Sabbath? I mean, it was a, it was a Sabbath different than a normal Sabbath? Does it mean it was a high day because it was the Passion Week? Does it mean it was a high day because it's it's Passover Sabbath? Is it, I mean, what are we talking about here? 
John's writers would understand the chronology here. They weren't Romans and they weren't Gentiles like, like um, Mark and Luke's readers, but the Holy Spirit, for some reason, put this thing in parentheses and said, for that Sabbath was a high day, just so we'll all understand that. And then, of course, the rest of the text we're going to look at in a few minutes. Why is that there? That Sabbath, this particular Sabbath, the Sabbath before the preparation day, was a high day, which opens up the entire question, especially when I look at that parentheses in there, was when was Jesus crucified? I mean, when did that take place? Traditionally, we know that Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, right? And Good Friday means, when I was growing up, I have no idea what it's like now, Good Friday means that when you would go to lunch in elementary school or junior high or high school, they didn't have junior high anymore, do they? You always had fish. You know, fish on Friday, on Good Friday, because of a Catholic influence or something of that nature. But when was Jesus crucified? I mean, there are two primary views here. The first one, of course, is either Wednesday or Friday, with Friday being the more traditional view, because we celebrate Easter, and Easter is kind of a floating holiday for Christians. We celebrate Easter, but it's not in the Jews. It's a specific day. And then we call, we, we uh, move back Easter pretty much a day and a half to Friday, Friday night, and we say that's Good Friday. And so Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. He spent Friday night in the tomb. He spent all day long Saturday in the tomb. He obviously spent Sunday morning in the tomb. If you assume Sunday morning begins like our calendar does at, uh, at midnight or, or 1 a.m. in the morning or something of that nature. So therefore, we have kind of three days here. And so it's kind of the traditional position. And most Bible scholars, most pastors, I mean, this is the way I was raised, it's pretty much a Friday deal. But we run into a couple problems, like these ladies that we've been talking about who go out and prepare spices, and then they follow you know, Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea to the actual tomb, and they see where he's buried. Then they run back and they go get spices. Then they come back and try to anoint him, but they have to stop because it's getting ready for the, uh, the Passover, to, or getting ready for the Sabbath to take place, and so they kind of sit and rest that one day. Then they go back early in the morning with those spices to continue that. And, and how in the world can that possibly take place if Passover began Friday at dusk, and Jesus died before dark on Friday. How do they take the body down, go follow to the tomb, see where the tomb is, then turn around and go back and buy spices in shops that are closed, and then come back and do that? I mean, it's, I've always wondered about those things, but kind of passed them off. It's really, really no big deal. But each of these two views, whether it's Wednesday or whether it's Friday, all hinge on the meaning of this word, three days and three nights. What does three days and three nights mean? And this comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew 12, 40, he says this, For as Jonah was, three days and three nights. Does that mean three part of a day? Does that mean 72 complete hours? Or what is three days? Does that mean three full days and three full nights? Or just kind of a day and a night being a 24-hour period, and as long as part of that 24-hour period, whether it's daytime or nighttime, is included. I mean, what does this mean? For as Jonah was three days or three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is not Paul uh, giving a commentary on this. This is not 
somebody else saying this is what's going to happen. This is the Lord Jesus Christ making them statement himself. Three days, three nights, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Uh, again, in John 2, it says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus, of course, gives the same sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, if somebody comes to me and says, If you destroy something, I'm going to return it to you in three days, I would really expect three full days after that, wouldn't you? So, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So again, the question, what, what, um, what do we mean by three full days? A couple facts. And I found this absolutely fascinating. Jesus was crucified on the Jew Jewish Passover and rose three days later. Yet in spite of that fact, the church in the first two centuries did everything they could do to separate the two events due to their anti-Semitic leanings. You know, we have a lot of anti-Semitism in the church today. Um, replacement theology is just a slam on the Jews. Most, Protestant, most mainline Protestant denominations do not believe in a literal uh, premillennial physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ to set up a thousand-year reign, as the Scripture talks about. They do not believe that Israel is still the apple of God's eye. What they believe is what's called replacement theology, where the church now has replaced Israel, where all the promises God made to Israel now apply to the church because Israel has violated their covenant. Israel's a really bad guy. Israel crucified the Lord, and so therefore God is completely finished with Israel. And for like almost 2,000 years, they justified that by the fact that there's no more nation. In AD 70, God judged Israel. Jerusalem was destroyed. Titus Vespasian came in and obliterated them. They were sent into the second dysphoria, and nobody even knows where they are anymore until May 14, 1948. And then all of a sudden, you had to sit back and rethink your theology. As a matter of fact, and I know I've shared this with you, if you will look at commentaries that were written in the 1800s, and you will read the passages from Ezekiel where it talks about the valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel, speak on these bones. What are these? Well, they're the entire nation of Israel. And they're all rattling together. And all of a sudden, they all come together. And their body produces tendons and muscles and flesh and everything. And they stand up as a mighty army. And as Israel's going to once again resurge in their, or reemerge in their own homeland, you'll find that every one of those commentaries spiritualize that. Oh, that's spiritual Israel. That really means the church because we can't conceive in our mind that God would bring back with their own language and their own vernacular people from all over the nation dispersed for almost 2,000 years back into the land and give it to them. And that happened in our lifetime and it's been the hotbed of turmoil in the world ever since. Has it not? Ever since. Did you see the interview Nikki Haley gave, our new ambassador to the UN, after her first Security Council meeting. It was chilling. She stood up there and she says, hey, I just finished having um, the meeting with the Security Council, and I was shocked. She says, I, I did not know what to expect when I went in there, but what I expected them to do was talk about, and she talked about, listed about 15 different things going on in the world where, where governments and people were, you know, killing Christians or, you know, terrorism and all that kind of stuff. Instead, they spent the entire time condemning Israel. And she went on to say that that will not happen again. I mean, she was shocked 
that even in the UN Security Council today, it's only about Israel, what a terrible people Israel is. And what I didn't know as I started researching this is that this anti-Semitism goes all the way back, not only into the first century, but especially in the second century where the church was forming its underpinnings of how they're going to view holidays and how they're going to view um, ordinances and stuff, and stuff of that nature. It was, um, it was, it was rather shocking. There was a, a position that was taken, and I'm just going to call it fortinism in Latin because I'm going to have a really hard time pronouncing that word. Basically, there was a group of Christians that said, listen, what we need to do is we need to celebrate Passover, and we know the crucifixion happened a few days after that, or the resurrection happened after that. We need to celebrate Passover as a Christian church, or Easter as we would call it, when the Jews actually celebrate Passover. In other words, it's the 14th of, 14th of Nisan. Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th of Nisan. It's a seven-day feast. We know when that is according to the Jewish calendar. So we need to celebrate Passover when Passover really took place. But the early church, and we're not talking about the early church in the book of Acts. We're talking about the early church 60, 70 years after that, after Jerusalem was destroyed, still had such anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish feelings about this, that their position was, no, we want to separate ourselves as far as we can from the Jews, and so therefore we're going to take Easter and make it an entirely different holiday. You know, we understand that Christmas is absolutely chocked full of um, non-Christian and secular imagery that is not even pretty much a Christian holiday. It hasn't been for a long time, although we try to sanctify it by making it about Christ as hard as it is in our culture, but they pretty much it was the church that did the same thing to the whole, uh, the whole festival at Easter. The Passover, according to the Bible, was to be celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan in the Old Testament calendar. And we find that in Leviticus, Leviticus 23. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight, it's dark time now, not during the day, but as soon as it gets dark, is the Lord's Passover. That's when the holiday begins. We have to have uh, the criminals, Jesus, off the cross before Passover begins at twilight. And Passover was to be a perpetual or everlasting ordinance. Uh, we find again this in Exodus, 4, in Exodus 12. So this day, and he's talking about the 14th day of Nisan, Passover, shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, and you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. It's, a, it's an amazing event that takes place where God came in and rescued his people and protected them by the blood that is spread with Isop in, in a form of a cross, pretty much, over the doorpost of their house. And, where they were hidden and protected by the blood. When the death angel saw the blood, he passed over them. It's all the imagery of Christ, and it's a perpetual ordinance for the Jews. But around the second century, we had some tension. Some tension that, um, that uh, we even still have today in the church. By this time, again, you have to understand that in A.D. 70, of course, Israel ceased to be a nation. The Jews were obliterated by the Romans at that time. They destroyed, um, destroyed Jerusalem, took 1.2 million Jews into captivity. I mean, it was, a, it was a really bad time for the Jews. And so, you know, a generation later, between 115 and 125, which was the, uh, the reign of Bishop Sextus 
the first, we find that the Roman church, or the church in Rome at that time, were now celebrating Passover um, on a uh, Sunday. Not a, it's not, a, not a Jewish event anymore. It's now a Christian event. You have to understand how the church operated in, in the beginning. In the beginning, there were no denominations. There were no statements of faith. There was no ecclesiastical bodies. There was no Christian newspapers, no Lifeways, no 106.9, no Christian music, Christian movies. It was none of that kind of stuff. You had these individual churches that were formed in these cities. Then you had an outgrowing area of just small groups. You would have a bishop or um, a pastor, an elder in those cities, and, and he would be the one that was teaching. And, and what happened is when there was a problem that came up, or if we decided in Rome that we don't want to adhere to the Jewish calendar anymore because we're anti-Jew, because we're Romans, what we're going to do is we're going to change it all. And if other churches follow us, that's fine. But if they don't, it doesn't matter. And if my church is bigger than your church and I'm more influential than you are, then maybe the teaching that I'm teaching will filter down to you. And you have a heresy that begins filtering through the church. And how does the church handle that? In 154 AD, Polycarp, and these are some names that you may not be familiar with, but in the first couple centuries of the church, there's only about 15 or 20 people that were noteworthy at all. There's, there, there were people that were Bishop of Ephesus or, or Constantinople or some of the larger churches of that area, and they had writings that survived. And Polycarp was one of them. Uh, Polycarp visited Rome, and uh, it was actually believed, Polycarp said that he was actually discipled by the Apostle John. John didn't die until about 100. So Polycarp was an eyewitness to uh, the Apostle John. He visited Rome to discuss the differences in his Passover calculations with one of the bishops there to try to reach some sort of compromise, but the compromise was never actually made public. Uh, we just know that he went there to do that. In other words, they're teaching one thing and we're going to another, and this is not the way it should be. We should hold on more to the biblical doctrine. You're creating some sort of straw holiday around here just to be against the Jews, and it shouldn't be that way at all. And uh, Polycrates, who lived from 130 to 196 of Ephesus, and uh, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, I don't really know how to pronounce that, wrote in support of these people who believed, no, it's, it's just, we, we have to celebrate it on the 14th of Nisan. So there's an anti-Semitic kind of tenet that's running through the church now to separate them from anything that is Jewish. And so unlike today, what the early church did is they decided to call an ecumenical council. And so what they did is they got the leaders from all the major churches, and they all came together into a city, and this city, the first one was in Nicaea. It was called in 325, and it's called by Emperor Constantine. He makes everybody come, and they present these issues to them, and they say, we need to take a position on this, because there's heresies that are spreading out there, and people are teaching things that may not be true, and we need to understand exactly what the truth is of the Scripture so we can codify somehow some sort of authoritative document or statement or creed that states this is orthodoxy and everything outside of that is heresy. This Council of Nicaea was dealing with a couple issues. The first one was the nature of Jesus and his relationship to God the Father. It took 200 years for the church to come up and understand the Trinity. Do you understand the Trinity? Well, they really didn't either. 
You know, but how, how is Jesus the Son of God? Was he begotten by the Father? Which means, was he birthed by the Father? Was he less than the Father when he came to earth? Was he just a man until the Holy Spirit came upon him as a baptized? Then he became a God, and he was a God until he was on the cross. This was a teaching back then. God that he was until he was on the cross. And then when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God took his Godship away from him, and he died as a man. But when he was raised from the dead, he became a God. God again, yet he's subordinate to God the Father. It's a very popular teaching. We have to deal with that heresy. We have to somehow correct that. That was something that the Council of Nicaea had to deal with. And, and there were other heresies that went on after. Who is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit co-equal with God? Or is the Holy Spirit just a power that flows from God? When we say, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit, Although that sounds orthodox, it's really basically saying that God the Father possesses the Holy Spirit and we're asking the Father to give us something that belongs to Him. Yet the truth is the Holy Spirit is co-equal with Christ and co-equal with God. True? But this person's teaching this and this person's teaching this and here's a popular charismatic teacher over here. So the church gets together and holds these councils to determine what is orthodox. And in the first 400 years of the church, there were a number of these, and they pretty much got it right. Then they went off the rails. What happens today when somebody starts preaching heresy? What happens when T.D. Jakes is, uh, starts preaching that there is no Trinity, he's the one that's Pentecostal, and believe, you know, talks about the fact that the Trinity does not really exist? Or what happens when Joel Osteen talks about the fact that that you can have your best life now and really create reality with your own words. That somehow by just speaking the words that God himself is bound by your words, which makes it an incantation. What, what happens when that takes place? What happens when a church over here decides that homosexuality is no longer a sin according to Scripture, but is now just an alternative lifestyle and it ordains and and you know, gay priests or gay female priestesses or something of that nature. And who governs any of that? You ever heard of an ecumenical council in your lifetime? Never, unless it's something Catholic. You know, because they all kind of live under one umbrella. What happens today is heresies can go everywhere. You want to know a heresy? Just go online and type in Trinity. First 20 things you're going to get, you have to check the website. Oh, that's grace to you. That's John MacArthur. I know that guy's going to be pretty solid. This is, I don't even know what this is. And I look at it, and that guy's off the wall here. And heresies just spread like gangrene right now. Not so back then. They had to deal with this issue. They had to understand what the Trinity was all about. They basically constructed the first part of the Nicene Creed, which was the first formal statement of faith that says this is what we agree on that the gospel's all about and they had to establish a uniform date for Easter because by 325 AD things were in disarray. You had uh, churches in the eastern part of the Roman Empire that at one time celebrated Easter 35 days after ch churches in the western part of the Roman Empire. It was a floating holiday and it was all designed to basically keep the Christian church for having nothing to do with their Jewish underpinnings. Here's the Nicene Creed. Really simple. 325 AD. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. That last phrase, visible and invisible, was added in the second uh, 
the, the second redoing of the Nicene Creed. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of gods, light of light, very God of God. In other words, they wanted to make sure that Jesus is God, completely God, and he was begotten of God, but not made. See the next phrase? Begotten, yes, but not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory and shall judge both the quick and the dead, quick meaning those that are alive, whose kingdom shall have no end. Now, this is all orthodox. What about the Holy Spirit? And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, because he is God, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Those words have different meanings for us today. Originally, the word Catholic meant universal, and apostolic is not a denomination. Apostolic meant it is built on the teaching of the apostles. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. One of their purposes was to establish a uniform date, let me get closer to this, for Easter. So here's what this council ruled. Listen very carefully. The council unanimously ruled. It wasn't like there was a group of them that said, no, we want to we hold on to the biblical mandate and celebrate Easter really when Jesus was, was resurrected, um, really after the, the, the Passover that on the 14th of Nisan. They didn't. They unanimously ruled that the Easter festival should be celebrated throughout the Christian world on the first Sunday after the full moon following the vernal equinox, which happens twice a year in March and in September. But, God forbid, if the full moon should occur on a Sunday and thereby coincide on the 14th of Nisan with the Passover festival, if that should happen in the future, then we should commemorate on the following Sunday. Because we're going to make a rule and then break the rule just to make sure that we have nothing to do with the Jews. Isn't that terrible? As a result, the Council of Nicaea, and this was amended by later councils, attempted to deliberately design a formula for Easter that would avoid any possibility of falling on the Jewish Passover, even accidentally. And if you said back then, no, I'm one of those guys that believe in the literal celebration of that holiday, you were excommunicated from the church. This is in the third century. To show you how bad it was, Eusebius, who was a great historian back then, wrote of the life of Constantine, and here he's quoting Emperor Constantine at this time. You'll love this. It appears an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews, who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin. Really, Constantine, you drowned two of your wives and two of your sons and are therefore deservedly afflicted with the blindness of soul. Let us have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. Oh, it sounds like the grace, doesn't it? 
Later on, Constantine wrote what he called his epistles. They're not biblical epistles. They're just a, a letter that was circulated around. Here's what he said in his epistle. It was in the first place declared improper to follow the custom of the Jews in the celebration of this holy festival because their hands, having been stained with crime, the minds of these wretched men are necessarily blinded. Let us, then, have nothing in common with the Jews who are our adversaries, avoiding all contact with that evil way, who, after compassed the death of the Lord, being out of their minds are guided not by sound reason, by an unrestrained passion wherever their innate madness carries them, a people so utterly depraved. Therefore, this irregularity must be corrected. In other words, celebrating Easter on a Jewish holiday. Uh, in order that we may, we may no more have anything in common with those parasites and the murderers of our Lord, no single point in common with the perjury of the Jews. So what happened is now you have two dates for Passover. You have the actual Jewish date and when it happened from Scripture, and then you have one created by the church. So Easter for the Christian church became full of confusion and more of a floating holiday. And now we basically celebrate Easter right after Good Friday, which is picked on this you know, fourth Sunday after the full moon and all that kind of stuff, which has nothing to do with falling on the proper day. Do you all see that? Nothing. So thank you, Steve, for the little history lesson. Really appreciate that. But uh, where are we going with this? A couple questions. So when was he crucified? It's important to know during that week. When did the Passover actually take place? Well, during that week, what was the series of events? I mean, was it really a Good Friday and then Sunday, you know, like we've historically looked at it? Or, or was he crucified on Wednesday? Was he crucified on Thursday? I mean, when did it actually take place? When Jesus was in the tomb, was he full three days in the tomb? Is that what the text is saying? Or just one full day and two partial days, which we kind of say is kind of okay for us. I mean, uh, was he crucified on Wednesday? Was he crucified on Friday? What do the scriptures teach? And quite honestly, the last question is, why is that even important? Because I find it fascinating. It is kind of important. So I'm hit you with some facts. Fact number one, Jesus said there will be three days and three nights between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Those are his words. It's not my words. Those are his words found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. I've already showed this verse to you. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the hearts of the earth. What do you mean by that, Jesus? Do you really mean three days? By the way, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, that's a debatable question. Do you really mean three days, or do you mean three parts of a day. I mean, how do you determine when a day begins and doesn't begin? When he made that statement, the, in the context of his hearers, did they understand him to mean three days? Was Jonah half of a day, a full day, and half of a day in the belly of the great fish? Or was Jonah three days in the great fish? What does it actually mean? Two, Jesus traveled from Jericho to Bethany six days before the Passover. We find that in John 12, 1, six days before the Passover. So the Passover was on a Friday. Six days before Friday would mean he made this journey on Saturday. And Saturday's a Sabbath. And on Saturday, a Jew could only travel a certain amount of, of uh, time. It's called a Sabbath day's journey. It was about four or five miles in the entire day. This distance is over 20 miles. So if Friday was the day of the Passover, six days prior to that would have been a Sabbath, and Jesus would have traveled longer than a Sabbath day's journey. 
We find that in John 12, 1. Then six days before the Passover. If the Passover was on Friday, this is now a Sabbath. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, and he'd been raised from the dead. And by the way, the verses prior to that say that he came from Jericho, 20 miles away. Fact number three. And this is one fun thing that I found absolutely fascinating. That during this particular Passion Week, there were actually two Sabbaths. They were two Sabbaths between Passover and Sunday morning. Every Saturday was a Sabbath. That was a standard Sabbath. They have 52 of those in a year. And then the Jews had seven special Sabbaths during the year that happened during feast time. There would be another Sabbath, and all those feast times were locked into various days, 14th of Nisan. That day during the calendar went from Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday to Friday to Saturday. Sometimes you had the one of the seven Passovers coincide with the regular Saturday Passover. It's kind of like Valentine's Day for us. Valentine's Day is February 14th, right? Is it always Tuesday? No, it's whatever. It just it kind of rotates around, and, and that's how it was pretty much back then. And we find out in this particular week, there were two Sabbaths between Passover and Sunday morning. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which starts on the 15th of Nisan, the day after Passover, lasts for seven days, and the first day and the last day of that feast are also known as Sabbaths. For example, and by the way, that week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 15th, began on a Thursday. Look what it says in Leviticus 23. And on the 15th day of the same month, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. It's a seven-day feast that you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall do no work on that day. It's a Sabbath day. So if you had, for example, a Sabbath that happens every single Saturday, which is the last day of the week, and we find that that, that is the... 12th of Nisan, this particular year. Then three days later would be on Tuesday, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You would have a Sabbath there. Then you would turn around and you'd have a Sabbath on the next Saturday. And then it kind of rotates around uh, based on well, just how their calendar worked, based on what day of the week the 15th of Nisan fell. Let me give you some facts that we all find, that we all really pretty much believe because uh, they kind of support a traditional crucifixion. And it simply means this, three days biblically doesn't have to mean 72 hours. Biblically, three days can mean just three partial days. We find that all through Scripture. Sometimes when, it's missed, when a day is mentioned, it's not a full day, it's a partial day. It's kind of like, uh, like if I said today, and today happens to be 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm talking about the rest of today, not a full 24-hour period from today. And so one of the supports of the traditional uh, view of Easter is the fact that a day can mean, you know, doesn't have to mean three little days. It can mean a, a literal Saturday and then a partial Friday and a partial Sunday morning. Plus, Mark 15.42 says this, and here's the, here's the proof text that we really hold on to if you hold to a Friday crucifixion. It says that, that the day um, that Jesus was crucified, the day before the Sabbath, which is the preparation day, and if, the, if we're talking about a Sabbath being Saturday, then this day has to be Friday, so Jesus had to be crucified on the preparation day on Friday. Make sense? The question is whether or not the Sabbath is really in this particular week on Friday, or maybe there was a second Sabbath with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here's where it gets a little fascinating. Uh, these are facts supporting, for example, a Wednesday crucifixion. And I'm not telling you this to be dogmatic. 
you can do your own research on it and see for yourself. I just want to show you what the Scripture kind of points to. Uh, in that particular week, we know that there were two Sabbaths. There was the Sabbath that began the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th of Nisan, and there was the Sabbath that just happened to be that following Saturday. Um, that's why John, the verse I read, said, for that, that Sabbath was a high day. This is where this all came from. Look in your John passage again, verse number 31, John 19, 31. Therefore, because it was preparation day, uh, is that Friday before that Sabbath, or was there another Sabbath there? The body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. We got that, but the Holy Spirit wants us to know for that Sabbath, this Sabbath we're talking about, was a high day. And as a high day, that means it's not just a regular Sabbath. It's not, it's not just a Sabbath that everybody would expect. It's kind of like just a regular Sunday. There was something special, something different about this Sabbath. And it may be the fact they're alluding to the fact that this was the first Sabbath. This was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Luke 23, 56 says that the woman purchased spices after the first Sabbath, whatever that was, and then rested on the Sabbath. And if you look at it, as I shared with you earlier, they couldn't have done both. They couldn't have seen Jesus die. The Jews run to the, uh, the Pilate and then hurry back to Pilate from you know, four o'clock till six o'clock and pry them down. Nicodemus go to Pilate and says, I want the body to bury, or Joseph of Arimathea does, and they say, okay. Then they carry the body off, and then the ladies follow and see where he's buried. Then they run back before sunset and buy spices, and then run back. There's no time. I mean, it just, it seems kind of a stretch of, <laughs> we can't even run to Walmart and back that fast before it gets dark. Most amazingly, this is something I didn't know, is that the word for Sabbath in Matthew 28, verse 1, is actually plural. You can look this up yourself. It's not a singular Sabbath, it's a plural Sabbath. And just in this verse, in this verse, some Bible translators translate it plural. Most of them basically take the traditional view and translate it singular. It, it reads, now after the Sabbath... As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. It literally reads, if you look at the Greek, now after the Sabbaths, after a plural of Sabbaths. Oh, yeah. There was a Sabbath that began on Nisan 15 at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then there was a regular Saturday Sabbath. Understanding that, if you try to put all this together, here is a possible outline of that week. And then I'll draw this part to a close. Friday, Jesus was at Bethany. Find that in John 12, 1. Saturday, he made the triumphal entry because from Bethany to Jerusalem is well within a Sabbath day's journey. He couldn't have gone to Bethany from Jericho on Saturday like you would have to go traditionally. Had to go earlier than that because that's longer than a Sabbath day's journey. So he makes his triumphal entry on the Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey. Sunday, of course, we find Jesus cursing the fig tree. We find that in Matthew and Mark. Monday, we've got the account of them getting together and conspiring. But they want to wait, and they don't want to do it until after the festival, lest the Jews riot. Tuesday and Monday, Sunday, the fig tree is cursed. Monday, you've got the conspirators coming together and counseling together how they're going to destroy Christ. He understands all that. Wednesday, of course, was the crucifixion. 
This is the this is the chronology for a Wednesday timeline. Thursday is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thursday is the first Sabbath. Okay? First Sabbath. Friday is the day of preparation for the standard Sabbath, the regular Sabbath, where the ladies went out and got spices. Saturday, of course, you have Jesus resting. Uh, you have them resting, and you have Jesus in the tomb, and where it talks about in Matthew 28 after the Sabbath, and Sunday he's risen. So I'm not, I'm not being dogmatic about this because nobody really knows, but I want to show you that just a little phrase in Scripture, such as, for that Sabbath was a high day, can lead you to really dig some stuff in Scripture that I find absolutely fascinating. It was a special day. It was a, an exalted day. It was a day um, noteworthy over and above a standard Sabbath. It was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exactly. No, there's a lot of days that the Lord sets apart like that and calls them high holy days. And the beginning of a Feast of Unleavened Bread would be one of those. There are other ones also. And in the Jewish calendar, again, you have 52 regular Sabbaths and seven other Sabbaths that coincide with various feasts. And it just so happens this particular week that it appears that um, there were two Sabbaths. And it kind of all of a sudden lays out all the questions that you have about, well, how did they go there and buy the stuff and come back? I mean, I can't, even, I can't even go to Walmart to get the kind of stuff. And they had to go and you know, follow the tomb on foot, then run back, go into the city, buy spices, come back, and had to do all that before it got dark. You know, anyway. But I want you to know the position that I just shared with you is not the standard position. In other words, that's not one that most people believe. And some of the Bible teachers that I admire the most, such as John MacArthur and stuff of that nature, just hold to a, a Friday thing. And I just, I, to me, when you realize that, that Matthew 28 verses plural, it kind of changes everything. And what I want to show you is just that phrase that's in parentheses. Every time you see something like that, there's a reason why the Lord put that there. You know, he wanted us to know that this Sabbath was different than what you would think it would be. This is a, a high Sabbath. Ah, what does that mean? And then when you search, it makes all the sense in the world. Back to the text here. Therefore, when it was evening, had come because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for this Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. Think about that. They had to actually go back to Pilate Talk to Pilate, get an audience with Pilate, ask if that would happen. Pilate had to give the command, communicate it back to the centurion. It was All that takes time. The, it might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, and I think the hypocrisy here is incredible. The Jews who just murdered an innocent man that they knew was innocent, that they basically cried out for his blood, wanted to make sure that he didn't hang on the cross over the holiday because if he did, it would defile their land. Isn't that crazy? Look what it says here in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on a tree. But you shall surely bury him that day. Why? So that you do not defile the land of the, of the Lord your God, which is giving you as an inheritance, for he was hanged as a curse of God. And so the Jews are like so, this is probably why the early Christians hated him so much. 
probably why people hate them today. The, um, they're, they're so, yeah, so exact on the law that they want to make sure that they follow all the commands of this law, but not the weightier things, such as love and justice and mercy and stuff of that nature. They cried out, give us Barabbas and let Jesus be crucified. But hey, we want to make sure we follow the law, take him off the cross because we don't want our land defiled like his blood doesn't already defile the land. Sounds crazy, isn't it? But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. I'm thinking, how would you know? I mean, how would you know? Blood and water. So I take, I take red pastel paint, uh, maybe uh, an oil or something of that nature. It separates. Wesson oil. Let that be the water and some red paint. And I mix them together and you pour them out and it just looks like a, a sludge. You know what I mean? It's, it's how do you know? They pierced his side and then blood and water came out. If you remember in the Passion of the Christ, you know, they pierced his side and the water, I mean, the, the stuff just spewed out all over the soldier. Remember, it fell down on us. You know, and, all right, maybe it happened like that, probably didn't. But how do you know, just like a spray. Or if, it, if, it, if they pierced him and it began to flow, did it divide up? I mean, how did they know? Says, and then John says, he was testified, his testimony is true, and he knows what he's telling is the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they looked upon them who they pierced. We'll talk about this next week. The fact is, is we know that's what happened, and we know that's how we died, and we know there was a separation of the serum, got all that. But how would they know? These are, these are not medical doctors. There's a guy on the cross who has been brutalized. I mean, brutalized. His body has been ripped to shreds. He's covered with blood. He's dead, if you've seen like the Shroud of Turin, which shows what a crucified man looked like. They take this spear, they jab it, and spearhead's about this size. They jab it up into his chest cavity, and then all of a sudden flows something. Blood and water. I think you're going to find something amazing here. First of all, a few facts about this. The word break means literally to shiver to pieces. Let me get that in your mind. I mean, they actually obliterated these guys' legs um, so that they could no longer hold themselves up and they dropped down and it hastened death. They either did that with a heavy mallet or an iron bar. And I was looking, again, I always look at stuff, not current, but stuff in the Philadelphia church age. And I was looking at what Bishop Ryle, uh, J.C. Ryle said about this and uh, one of his sermons that he preached. And I thought this was fantastic. He says, it is noteworthy that the penitent thief, the good guy, even after his conversion, had more suffering to go through before he entered paradise. Jesus said, I save you. Your faith has saved you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus dies. This guy still has his knees shivered to pieces or his femur bones destroyed with the back of a battle axe. It says, the grace of God and the pardon of sin did not deliver him from the agony of having his legs broken. When Christ undertakes to save our soul, he does not undertake to deliver from bodily pains and conflict with the last enemy. Penitence, as well as impenitence, must taste death until the Savior first, unless the Savior returns first. Have you noticed that when you get saved, sometimes in the flesh your life is not better but worse? 
You know, boy, if I could just get saved, things would be great. My acne will clear up and, and, you know, I'll be able to marry this fine girl over here and I'll win the lottery and things will be great. And all of a sudden you get saved and you realize that everybody hates you, that you have this big bullseye on your chest, that somebody told you that this was your best life now. Do you realize that only lost people, this is their best life now? This is the best life a lost person is going to have because when they die, they go to hell. For Christians, this is our worst life now. Isn't that amazing? Watch this. The text says blood and water came out. So there must have been, they had to see, there must have been a noticeable separation of these two present to note the distinction. I mean, it had to be. They're looking at this. They didn't expect this. John, of course, especially, who's writing this, didn't expect this to happen. It's not that Jesus said, when my side is pierced, you're going to see a separation of blood and water. He saw it happen, and he goes on to talk about, I'm telling you the truth. The testimony is true. This is exactly what I saw. Boom, and the, the fluid comes out, and it must have, Tony's talking about it, it must have somehow separated to a point that they could see, wow, that is blood and that is water. Now remember, who's watching this? Who's writing this? John. John sees this and he goes on to say, um, uh, he goes on to talk about the fact in verse number 35, and he who is seen has testified, this is John talking about himself, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. This separation of blood and water made such a profound impact on John's life that he almost breaks into this verse 35 thing. But I'm telling you the truth, and I'm telling you this happened because it's a sign. It's a sign that you'll believe. If it is true that the blood separated with the water, with the serum, when it's a miracle, and we find out that this miracle testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. And John saw that, and it clicked in John's brain, and he understood exactly what he was seeing, and he told us about it in his letter, 1 John chapter 5. Watch this. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And he, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, can you give me a sign? Can you give me a testimony? What points to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He, Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And who confirmed that to you, John? And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. Continuing, up in heaven, there are three who bear witness. There's the Father, Christ, who is the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, these three agree. But what about on earth? What is the last sign that John saw at his death that this is the Messiah? And there are three that bear witness on earth for us to see. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. And then he goes on verse 35, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've seen this and I know it's true and I'm writing about it in my letter in 1 John because I want you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And, and we could develop what the water and blood means and all that kind of stuff, but the bottom line is 
this miracle that took place, bam, he's really dead, and it separates in the water and blood. John says, and that's the testimony. He didn't just come out of water, but by water and blood. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you weren't um, confused enough, I have a bonus round for you, okay? A bonus round. We talked about, um, we talked about these ecumenical councils, these church councils. Uh, there were like 20 of them up until the Reformation time. And during the Dark Ages, uh, in the latter part of the Dark Ages, about seven, or, uh, seven years, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, all of a sudden it was just the Catholic Church and everybody else was heretics. And all of a sudden these ecumenical councils really went off the rail. But I want to show you as a Protestant um, the ones that we kind of adhere to, the early ones, the first ones, and what they had to deal with. The first one, of course, was the um, First Council of Nicaea that we've already talked about. It dealt with one of the earliest heresies, which was uh, Arianism, which asserted that Christ was created by the Father and later adopted by His Son. That's why the Nicene Creed talks about begotten but not created, not made, you know, God of God, Lord of Lords. In other words, they're all co-equal. They had to deal with that issue. That was in 325 A.D. Uh, a couple of decades later, you had the First Council of Constantinople, which had to deal with another heresy. And this affirmed the divinity of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. Because after the Council of Nicaea, all these other guys came in there and said, yeah, but the Holy Spirit is not really God himself. The Holy Spirit is a power that emanates from God. And there's many in the church that believe that today. Lord, send me your spirit. It's not, that's like, you know, give me your money or let me eat from your sandwich or something that you possess, but he's co-equal with God. And so the first council of Constantinople tried to deal with that and they condemned a new heresy, um, Apollinarianism, which claimed that Christ was part man and part God, but not completely one or the other. I mean, how does that, how does that work out? And they would come up with these really strange ideas. You had about uh, 50 years later, the first council of Ephesus. And this council defined the teaching that Christ is one person, not two persons, as the Nestorians claimed. In other words, they believed that Jesus just wasn't God. He was God and man. And so he didn't exist as one person. He was actually two people. The idea that I told you about him being born a man, a Holy Spirit comes upon him and creates him into a God at his baptism. And he's a God all during the... Uh, until he's on the cross, and then God, he loses his godhood, and he dies on the cross, and when he's resurrected, God gives him godhood back. That was his heresy, and it was very prominent back then, and so they had to have a council together and basically uh, deal with that. It also repudiates one of the most insidious heresies of the Christian uh, history, which is plague, plagueism. Is that anything else that? This is really prevalent today, and this basically says there's no original sin, that it's all about you, that you can use your free will with your own merits without God's grace to earn your salvation. And people, there's tenets of this in, in every major denomination around. Supposedly that was dealt with in 431, but it keeps raising its ugly head. 20 years later, you have the Council of Chalcedon. After Ephesus declared that Christ was one person, some Christians took that teaching too far, concluding that he had just one nature. In other words, he wasn't God and man. He wasn't fully a man to sympathize with your needs and be tested in every way that you were, that he was absolutely totally God and only God. And uh, I won't even pronounce what this word means. And uh, this council addressed that issue, but the Eastern Church refused to accept that. And eventually you had the Great Schism in 1054 A.D. where you had the church split from the Western 
uh, the Western Church that we know, and then the Eastern Orthodox Church, which moved their, um, moved their capital away from Rome to Byzantine and finally Constantinople. Probably. A lot of them do. Then you had the Second Council of Constantinople at 553, and this council rejected the three chapters as Nestorian, and these were three letters and teachings that were going around, and they looked at those and they determined that those be heresies. It's pointless for us to go through that, but it's kind of like the first one is um, your best life now, and the second one is the shack, and the third one is, you know, is that kind of thing. You know, kind of reject these things as, uh, as heresy. Had a whole council to do that. Then you had the third council of Constantinople in 680, which basically has the same heresy, a different packaging, talking about uh, whether Christ just had one will. It wasn't God just dictated to him like a puppet rather than him have his own will, which violates the whole idea of him in the garden saying, God, you know, take this away from me, I mean, like he was a robot, which again denies one nature of God. Same heresy, different package. And then all of a sudden, by the time you get to the Second Council of Nicaea, things begin to go Catholic on you. Uh, there was a group of people that basically were venerating icons, saying that, um, oh yeah, this is a saint and this is a bone you know, the jawbone of the Apostle Paul, and so therefore it's blessed and you can use it for healing and you can worship and pray to those things and it has some sort of, of you know, grace that's connected to that. And so the council got together and instead of repudiating that because we're moving heavy into Catholicism now, they basically reaffirmed that. They said that this council declared that venerating icons was not only permissible, but it was necessary because then the church would sell these things. And it was lambasted, and they lambasted anyone who claimed that veneration was akin to the worship of God or the veneration of icons violated the Old Testament commandments against worshiping false idols. It was a big problem and a huge error in a Catholic church. If you will take a Catholic Bible today and you will open up the Bible and you will look at the Ten Commandments, the one commandment that is missing, they renumbered them, is missing, is the one about making graven images. They've actually removed that from their, their account in Exodus I didn't know this until Randy brought his Bible. I was going, dude, you know, and uh, they've actually removed that from there and split it up. There's still Ten Commandments, but that one about graven images is gone because the Catholic Church is full of graven images. I mean, because they venerate icons. From this point on, everything goes south. The very next council basically said, we believe in transubstantiation. Every, um, every Christian has to go to confession uh, I think once a month, you, they, they started venerating Mary, and every one of these, up until the Reformation time, really headed the church in a very, again, we're in the, we're in the Dark Ages here, in the Middle Ages, headed the church into a very bad area until Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the University of Wittenberg and began what we know as a Protestant Reformation and rescued from us salvation by faith and faith alone. Amen? Amen.